As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Golazzo is brought to you by Bet365, the world's favorite online betting company. The Bet365 app lets you access pre-match and in-play markets and provides instant match updates across the biggest sports. Hi-ho, Silver. In this Golazzo, we're rewinding to the days of Ravanelli. At the Pena Bianca from Perugia, the man trapped called a bricky, battled his way from the depths of the fourth division and briefly lived the dream before waking up in Barra. Fabrizio Ravanelli in this Golazzo. Golazzo! This is Ravanelli. Now Ravanelli! Ravanelli has continued his run. Here is Ravanelli, and it has to be the first goal. And Ravanelli has struck for Juventus. Yes, indeed, Peter. For UK-based folk, few things are as evocative as Peter Brackley heralding another thumping strike by that silver-haired fellow who would then stick his shirt over his head and run around blindly with his arms out. Glory years of Calcio. Glory years of Fabrizio Ravanelli. And joining us to look back on all of that now is... Hello, Gabriele Marcotti. ESPN senior writer, Gabriele Marcotti, to you, James. <laughs> and indeed to everyone, Gab. And also from The Athletic, James Horncastle. Hello. All righty. Hey, James, did you ever do a Ravanelli in the playground? I did. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why he uh, has this kind of disproportionate reputation. Um, because if you look at his numbers, I mean, he's not even in the top 100 top scorers in Serie A history. There are players like Borriello, Matri, um, Vucinic, even Josip Ilicic have scored more goals. And from his era, Roberto Muzzi um, as well. And yet Ravinelli has this... Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you... It's interesting you mentioned Matri and Borriello because you're mentioning <laughs> two of the more handsome Italian strikers. Then you're yeah. adding Ilicic, who's the ultimate cult figure. And then you're adding Mirko Vucinic, who's the snake. I mean, you're comparing <laughs> them to a bunch of very, very cool people who had a profile, who you knew got play either through their looks or because they're genius or whatever. I mean, Ravanelli's not like those other ones. 
Well, I think I, I would beg to differ. I would say he was cool because he was distinguished. James referenced his his nickname, uh, La Pena Bianca. And I, I know, Gab, you're Italian. James was out there at the time. But to like an English kid growing up, the idea that someone had a nickname that wasn't Wazza or something like that was, <laughs> was, was pretty special. Um, and also he had... I mean, this, the the most like the famous celebration is is the one of him pulling his shirt over his head. But he had loads of celebrations. He did like the Macarena kind of dance. He, yeah. he famously went behind the goal. He would get the microphone and kind of do this kind of weird singing into the microphone. And uh, yeah, I mean, we we had no idea, I suppose, at the time of, of how he'd got to Juventus. It was like he'd always been at Juventus. So he was a Champions League winning striker. Um, he was, I think, part of Italy's squad at Euro 96. He comes to, to England. He scores a hat-trick on, on his Premier League debut. So he, he had this huge reputation in the UK, which uh, I must say, looking back at how he got to Juventus, it's, it is surprising. And looking at uh, his kind of status within the Italian game, uh, it is surprising that in, in, in England in particular, he is seen as this massive Italian elite striker. I mean, I think I think James makes a really good point there. Is I'd actually, I it shows you how long it lasts. But you know, I'd forgotten by the whole thing behind the goal, and you know, you mentioned obviously the shirt over the head celebration. But he was kind of ahead of his time in the sense that when he was in his pomp, there was no YouTube. People didn't share clips online. But I mean, if you look at like how popular something like the Papu dance is, right? Right now, Ravanelli would have had him like a hundred times over with all his stunts and the weird things, and even the negatives, like like the like the dives or when he'd control the ball and the ball would would like skitter like like ten ten meters away. He'd have a lot of that, right? So he was kind of a meme footballer before in the nineties. <laughs> He's kind of like GameStop. Yeah, I think I think if if you had a celebration, I mean, at the same time you had Lee Sharp, who had the Sharpie Shuffle, right? And Lee Sharp was not a good player by Manchester United standards. You know, he he didn't last long there, um, and yet he is memorable, kind of for that sort of thing. I also think Peter Brackley has a massive role right. in Ravinelli being uh, big in the UK because that is probably the name that you most associate with with Football Italia, of, of him saying that with such panache. Well, the thing is, he was also, for a brief time, an incredibly important striker for Juventus in the biggest team of all in Italy. The only Juve player uh, to score five goals in a single European match. Uh, also the player who scored arguably Juve's most important goal of the past 30 years. How did it all come about? Worth us looking back on his journey from Perugia and back again. Wow, nostalgia canalia. What's that mean, Gab? Um, <laughs> canalia in general is really hard to. I mean, it's like to, darned memories. Huh? Yeah, it's like it's like you know those those sort of um, you know memories that you have, which you'd rather not have, but you still want. It's like being in a bad relationship where you can't help yourself, but you keep going back. You know. Wow, it's like loving Italian football. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I guess. Well, the Ravanelli story starts in darkest Perugia, setting for many a Calcio legend, of course, as listeners to Galazzo will know from Gaucci to Gaddafi, 
Earlier, of course, uh, Curi Castagna and the Perugia dei Miracoli, the first City side to ever go a whole season unbeaten. By the mid-80s, Perugia had fallen a long way from those glories. By the time an already silver-haired Ravanelli was coming through their ranks, Igrifoni had fallen all the way down to Cidue, the fourth tier. Interestingly, they bring him through and they've got another promising youngster, Angelo De Livio, also in the side. As they set about trying to climb back up, they do well enough after the first couple of seasons to win promotion. And Fabrizio gets a move to a City of B side, Avellino, where he's seen as a bit of a bidone, not very good, doesn't stay long, moves around, goes to Casatana, Avellino again, and then ends up at Reggiano in City B. Nothing about this, I have to say, screams birth of a legend, Gab. No, and, you know, it's funny when you were mentioning sort of Perugia to me is is one of my it was one of my favorite places in Italy just simply because of all the great stories. You encapsulated a lot of the good football ones there. There's obviously a lot of non-football ones, which are equally great from the, the monster of Florence to Bacciani. No, there was, there was nothing to suggest in his early years that, you know, he looked like we, we have a word in Italy called um, bomber di categoria which is kind of like, okay, that's your level. You, you can score goals at that level, which incidentally, Ravanelli didn't always do either. Um, you know, there, there's legendary names from, from, the, uh, from, from, from the past Italian history, which might be obscure, although probably not to James Hoincastle, but people like Sauro Frutti and uh, <laughs> De Florio, these guys who'd score like 25 goals, usually playing for teams in the south of Italy. And then, you know, they maybe move up to Serie A and like never play and then they go back and be local heroes. A Giorgio Corona, another one, right? A lot of the time, when these guys get offered to go to Serie A, they get offered more money to stay in Serie B because exactly that, they are the bomba di categoria. They, yeah, they are renowned for doing a job in the second or third division and getting these teams promoted and then rather than going up with them, you know, a promotion chasing team will will sign them instead. You know, more recently, I think there are only a handful of exceptions like uh, Ciccio Caputo, for example, who's at Sassuolo mm, yeah. at the moment and the second highest scoring Italian after Ciro Immobile. Um, he's, you know, stayed in the league, moving from Empoli to Sassuolo rather than going back down. Whereas the other Donnarumma, who um, uh, was banging the goals for Brescia and Empoli and that sort of thing, he's gone back down. So um, it was, I suppose, in some respects surprising that uh, he got the move he did. But then again, if you look at some of the deals Juventus were doing at that time, Toto Schilacci is another one. Mm. Right? Toto Schilacci, they, they, they would routinely go down into Serie B and sign someone on the back of a good season and make him a part of their their team, which is kind of wild. Um, you know, when you when you think of, I don't know, is there a comparison to be drawn in this country with a, a Manchester United or a, a Chelsea basically deciding that they're going to sign the top scorer from the championship? Um, but yeah, I mean, even in his last season at Reggiana, James, eight goals in 32 games, that does not smack of Juventus. No, I think, I think the season <laughs> that had caught their eye was the, the previous one where he, he, he got double that. He got 16 goals. They very nearly came up. And I think that's when Juve became aware of him or at least became more acutely uh, of the opinion that he might have a role to to play in Turin. They leave him there for a year, which is the kind of classic Juve thing to do with one of these kind of lesser known acquisitions. Which, were, by the way, did him no favours. Mm. This was, I mean, back then, this was pre-Bosman, right? But you had this, this, this system with the what they called FIFA parameters, where when you went out of contracts, you couldn't move, but there was a preset formula. And then that formula, it depended on your wages. And because he wasn't making any money at Ajana, 
essentially by doing it that way, they were making sure that Avanetti didn't sign a new contract, um, that Ajana would get very little money for him to leave. And I think in, in that way, probably Juve would save themselves money, which they could give to Ravanelli when he moved. It's it's a game that was sort of frowned upon and is a bit dubious, but obviously something Juve had done time and again, not just them, to be fair. Mm. Um, but you made a good point before about the whole idea of clubs getting, especially Juve getting like a random guy from the lower divisions and then the guy turning out to be pretty good. A, to me, the ultimate example of that is uh, Moreno Torricelli, you know, another one who God knows where they found him. Well, they, we know where they found him. He was playing for his works team. He, he was working in a <laughs> in a kind of wood factory, kind of workshop thing. They had a works team, and they 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 played. Is this just an urban myth? This is this is true, no? And they they played. No, this a, is true. A but the friendly. way you set that up, it was like he was working as a waitress in a cocktail <laughs> bar. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> <so>. yeah. <laughs> no. But but the thing is, I mean, it's so true what you were saying. Like there was this perception back then. I think. I think it's changed a little bit today. You know, the gulf between Serie B and Serie A was just so, so great. And, you know, if you scored a lot of goals in the second division, either you were very young and then somehow the big clubs just kind of missed you and so then they, they'd sign you. Or, you know, when Ravanelli did it, he was already 23, 24 years old, something yeah. like that. So, you know, there wasn't a sense, but people had seen him and they said, this guy's kind of like a donkey who runs around. There's no point... <laughs> You know, why would we big clubs sign him? Right. And the bad Serie A clubs is why would we give this guy a big contract? So he ends up staying in, in Serie B for, for, for several years. He's one of many. So a silver-haired donkey, though, that ran around, which was kind of different to all the other ones, if he'd had dark hair, would he ever have made it, do you think, to Serie A or to a big club in Serie A? Well, I, I was surprised to learn that. Um, so his hair started to go gray very, very young, like when he was 12. And by the time he's 16, he's basically booked out of central casting to, to do an advert for an investment bank as, as though he is like some, I don't know, uh, wizened old man looking after his savings. Um, so given he already stood out for like, you know, advertisers wanting to, uh, to get people to put their money uh, in, in their banks, then, you know, yeah, maybe, maybe the hair does, does have a uh, factor. I mean, it certainly did for me. I mean, that's when, when Gab was saying that there wasn't something cool about him. There was something memorable right. about him in that you just don't see, don't see guys like that. Right. And maybe as well for Juve with, you know, Roberto Bettega, the whole notion of a, a silver-haired striker had it and a special uh, charm. Anyway, in 1992, Juve were a little bit in the doldrums uh, and were having a major summer spending spree. They tried to match the might of the, the Milanese sides. They spent that summer 30 billion lira on uh, Gianluca Vialli, <laughs> which you know, sounds slightly less impressive in English, but at the time was absolutely huge. It would be, what, about 10, 11 million? Uh, David Platt came for another 13 billion. Uh, Dino Baggio... Party. Sorry? <laughs> His friends call him Platy. David Platy <laughs> came for 13 billion. Dino Baggio, no relation for six. Uh, Andreas Muller from Eintracht Frankfurt for 3.5 billion. And also in there, kind of a side order of Ravanelli for 3 billion. He's very much, though, uh, viewed as fifth choice striker. Is that fair? They've got Baggio, they've got Viali, now they've got Caseraghi and Muller. Adjoining to he is the Gregario. Yeah, I think the thinking was Viali had just arrived and was obviously the central figure. They needed somebody to back him up. They felt that Viali could play with Casiraghi in some some situations, but didn't just want to play the season with just 
two center forward options. Because at the time, there was still endless debate about whether Vialli was a, a prima punta, a seconda punta. You know, this is around the Sotto time that punta. Luca started. Sotto punta. <laughs> <laughs> Where yeah, Luca was thinking, you know, he could he could play further back, you know. Um, so the idea then was like, all right, let's just have another guy who can do the Gigi Kaziragi stuff, you know, sit up front, get the ball. Obviously, Baggio's not going to do that. Andy Muller is, is the size of a symbol. Um, so, you know, we need this other guy. Um, and I think that was the idea. Ravanelli would play against the bad teams. Ravanelli would, would come in and get kicked. He'd be the enforcer. It's that kind of thing. Hmm. Well, there's a great quote that Ravanelli mentions from his, in the early months of him being in Turin where he, he, he reveals that Trapattoni said to the team that some are born to be an architect, some are born to be a surveyor, and there are some who are born to be bricklayers. I belong to this third category, says Fabrizio, and I'm proud of it. So I- interesting image he had of himself as well. First season under Trap, he gets five goals, uh, mostly pace and power. The second's a little bit better. Uh, Kazaragi at this point has moved on, so there's a bit more space in the team. But in 1994, things changed for Ravanelli and Juve with the arrival of Marcello Lippi and of Juve's new fitness coach, Giampiero Ventroni, and a whole Marines mentality. Yeah, and Lippi comes in, sits them down in uh, the gym at uh, Seasport, their sort of training ground, and says um, that this Juventus team is not going to be dependent on anyone. And that was kind of seen as a shot to the bows for Roberto Baggio. It's like, we're not going to build this team around you. Uh, anyone can contribute even your brickies like Fabrizio Ravinelli. And we mentioned uh, Venterone, but uh, yeah, I think Ravinelli felt that this new regime that came in really kind of played to his strengths, which were as a player, stamina kind of, you know, he covers every blade of grass, team spirit. He hates uh, strikers who only play to score goals. You know, for example, later on, he would say that he kind of looked at uh, Pippo Inzaghi disapprovingly because Inzaghi would be happy um, having scored, even if it was in a 3-1 defeat. And he was like, no, that's not me. I would far rather not score and as win than score and as lose. And uh, yeah, I mean, he tells some stories to Ravinelli about that Ventrone regime, which was, I think they were playing a friendly, uh, probably at Villa Perosa, the Agnelli country pile, um, before the first season. And uh, the players who were taken off at half time were basically told to get on the treadmill um, and run out what would be the remainder of the game and cover a certain distance. And you know, some of his teammates were vomiting. And yet, you know, he seemed to really, uh, this seemed to really kind of bring out the best in, in Ravinelli, as we would see. You know, when Lippi, we've spoken about this before, but uh, basically puts this attacking trident together of uh, Viali, uh, Baggio and Ravinelli, later Del Piero. And it is all about kind of these guys putting in the defensive shift and scoring goals. And he has his best season ever. But I, I think um, this was one of those rare uh, situations where the club and a new manager, and, and this is something that, you know, often does not happen in Italy, where the club were totally in in sintonia, as we say in Italy, where we're totally on the same page in terms of what they were going to do. Because I'm looking at their signings at this season, and it's all like total blue-collar athlete types, right? It's it's Didier Deschamps, the ultimate water carrier, right, for, for Zidane. It's this guy, Luca Fusi, who didn't play very much, but he was a, he's a typical Italian player who 
you know, I remember as a kid growing up and reading the papers, everybody would talk about how brilliant Luca Fusi was because he's so intelligent and so tactical, worked so hard. And he couldn't play. He just sat in front of the, literally, this is a guy who used to play for Como before he went to Torino. You just sit in front of the back four and just run and pass the ball sideways. But that was super precious. They, they signed Tacchinardi, who was young at the time. And obviously Tacchinardi could play as well, as could Paolo Sosa, uh, the other big signing. But, but, Equally, these are all deep-lying people, passers, you know, worker bees, essentially, and then the ultimate worker bee at the back in, in Chiro Ferrara. So is there, I think what happened there is there was an idea that if I'm going to play the three strikers together, I want to have all these guys who just work their butt off in, in front of the back four. And then having done that, he goes one step further and says, well... I want to get my strikers to work too. And to be fair, certainly in Viali, you had somebody who loved that stuff. As Luca, especially in those years, totally got off on the athleticism and working hard and Ventron and all this stuff. Roberto Baggio, not so much, and as we discussed, <laughs> why ultimately he was supplanted by Del Piero. And clearly a guy like Ravanelli said, well, you know, this is something I can do and something I can do well and the only way I'm going to get into, into the team. And But even then, I think it's worth remembering, you know, we describe it as a 4-3-3, which I guess technically it was, but Lippi's big thing was, you know, what he called the, the elastico, the, the rubber band. So this idea that, yeah, I have three guys up front, but in reality, we're still playing 4-4-2 because they're going to take turns slotting back into the midfield. Um, and this was partly for defensive reasons, but also partly because he loved the idea of having a runner from midfield. None of his other midfielders could do that, right? Deschamps wasn't going to do that. He wanted a Lampard-esque figure running through to shoot on goal, and that's what the three of them did. On a, you know, they took turns coming back into the into in, into the middle of the park. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point because they'd sold Dino Baggio to Panama, and and Dino Baggio was was that player, so they needed one of the three to do it. And just as Gab says that, um, you know, Viali really got off on the kind of the the, the training that they were doing. I mean. You know, even after his career, Ravinelli, he does dolomite marathons, mm. you know, sort of running through eight mountain passes. He does those kind of mock That's on a bicycle, Giro isn't it? Well, uh, yeah, that was a marathon, but he also does these mock Giro d'Italia and Tour de France kind of cycle stages as well. What, on his Peloton bike or like? In- no, no, for real. He's no, no, he's legit. Serious. He's like Lewis Enrique. <laughs> oh, I know, you know, I know. I wish I was something <laughs> really kind of sad about those people, but anyway. Wow, <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's not, we could do a whole other podcast on what like, okay. you know, footballers do after they retire yeah. in terms of sports. Tacchinardi became one of the best over 40s tennis players in Italy. Mm-hmm. Ravanelli just puts on his lycra, gets on a bike and goes up the mountain. Just you know, it, it says something about them. Yeah. Okay, well, anyway, in this podcast, meanwhile, we're talking about him as a player. And as you mentioned, James, 94-95, the arrival of Lippi, it is his best season ever. He gets 31 goals in 54 matches, including early on in that, uh, on the 27th of September, 94, all five goals in Juve's 5-1 win of Seska Sofia in the uh, UEFA Cup. Crikey. And they're all in the first half, James, the five goals he scores. He has a seven-minute hat-trick, and it's a 15-minute period in which he scores between his first and his fifth goal. I mean, that's even though it was against Seska Sofia, that is, that is insane. Mm, absolutely. Other goals follow against the likes of Milan, lovely lob against Seb Rossi. Uh, famously, uh, a, a goal against Napoli, which sees him inspired to lift his jersey over his head and run around blindly. 
in a move that will become, well, iconic. This season, of course, was all about Juve's duel with Parma. You mentioned the fact that they bought Dino Baggio uh, from Juventus. They were in their kind of Parmalat heyday, impossibly rich, rivaling uh, La Signora across three competitions, the Scudetto, the Cup and the UEFA Cup. Ravanelli really key to uh, Juve's success in, in two of those, the uh, Copper and the, the, the Scudetto, scoring four goals across, uh, well, actually f- five goals across three meetings with Parma. One of the most famous, I think, was one of his most famous goals was the... Uh, the kind of diving header, getting in ahead of Fernando Couto's boot in a, in a victory against the Ducali. Uh, is that one that sticks in your mind, Gab? Yeah, I remember that well because I think before that, Fernando Couto, obviously, does you remember him? He was kind of the, the archetype of the the pretty nasty central defender, right? And I give Ravanelli credit here. He wasn't, he wasn't afraid to mix it. You know, and I said he was the enforcer. You know, when when you play on a team with 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 Andy Mother and 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 Baggio and Del Piero, and 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 Viali, to be fair, there isn't much nasty there, right? Certainly not up front. And there's more nasty in the middle of the park with people like Deschamps who might come up. But you know, Deschamps is also the size of a Smurf, Conte. right? The balding Conte. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But then we also know the reality about Conte when he runs into the Matrix, he gets scared and runs away. So. <laughs> you know, the, so, but I mean, in terms of the size and the, the enforcer, you know, Conte would have to run from way further back, but it was Ravanelli. And I remember this, we have this Italian term called sportellate, which I, I guess comes from the idea that of two cars sort of racing each other in some sort of car chase. And so you open your car window to bang it or your car door to bang it. And get it. So I'm, I'm assuming that's where it comes from, but, but it, it, it gives to mind this idea of, two players chasing a ball and kind of chasing each other and shoulder charging. And I just have vivid memories of, of Coto Ravanelli kind of doing that for most of the game. And more often than not, neither one getting to the ball because a foul would be called. Mm. It's a great diving header though. Yeah. It's what, Viali cross. And it's a kind of classic uh, Ravanelli finish in that the ball seems to be getting away from him and he stretches this time, you know, obviously with his, with his head rather than with his feet and manages to still get enough power um to to score um but yeah i mean there was some i would say this is his best goal scoring season not only in terms of the number of goals but the kind of goals he scores i mean there's one against his old team regina um earlier in the season where i think it's del piero lays it off with a back heel and he just hits it on the fly and it just soars into the top corner and there was a there's maybe another one against napoli where again some great build up play like that he hits it it hits the bar, it comes back out to him and he scores. <laughs> it's just that, that's a, uh, that's a very satisfying way to get a goal. So that season ends with Juve winning the double, beaten though in the cup final, the two-legged UEFA Cup final by Parma. The following season, their runners-up, Ravanelli has 16 goals, but at the end of that campaign comes the pinnacle of his time in a Juventus jersey on a warm evening in Rome, summer 1996. Juve facing Ajax in the Champions League final. Fabrizio pulls out a goal which for technique and intelligence is actually pretty, pretty special. Attenzione, c'è un po' di imprecisione, Ravanelli, Ravanelli, attenzione, attenzione, goal, goal! Goal! Sfruttando un errore di Feindepur, Ravanelli porta in vantaggio la Juventus quando siamo al dodicesimo minuto. Goal di Fabrizio Ravanelli, Juventus 1 but he writes about it in his book, in his own 
in his own Ravanelli humble way, where he says like, I had noticed that uh, the DeBoer brothers were a little bit, uses Italian term, leggerini. They were a bit light in the loafers, I think you might say. A bit casual. But yeah. Casual, yes. Um, and what he means is these guys were tried to build up from the back. And remember, you know, younger listeners, this wasn't a time when teams necessarily pressed. And so Ravanelli, again, to his credit, he completely read the situation that, you know, after standing around, letting him pass the ball between them like a million times, he sort of goes for it. And then when he wins the ball back, he's way out of position. He doesn't have much of an angle and he finishes it. And they, ne they nearly save it on the goal line. But, but to his credit, that was all on him. I mean, you talked about some of his finer goals before in the Koto goal. This was one where he combined, I thought, smarts and, and work rate and, and a good finish. Mm -hmm. It put Juve 1-0 up, Ajax eventually equalised, and then it goes to, to penalties. Ravanelli's off, off the field at, at this point. But the significance, though, of that goal and, and the fact that it kind of set them up for the Champions League win, Gab, can, can you just explain that? The goal, obviously, the, the game ends, ends in a draw and they go, to, they go to penalties and they win in Rome. And, but for Juventus to win a European Cup, obviously, this had been one of the great issues, one of the great themes in Italian football was the fact that, you know, for many years until Heisel, Juventus had never won a European Cup. Uh, they lost European Cup finals um, to Hamburg, to Ajax back in 72, I want to say, uh, with one Fabio Capello uh, on the team. And it was part of the whole loaded way that Juventus are seen in Italy because people would always point out, oh, look, you've won more titles than anybody else but you have a great big goose egg in Europe. And to be fair, Heisel didn't really change that because obviously people remember the, the Heisel tragedy and it's remembered for that, right? And it didn't feel tasteful, even at the time, you know, with hindsight, even the fact that they celebrated that victory didn't feel tasteful to many. And, and obviously the penalty on which they won was clearly outside the box and you can go on YouTube and see it. And that game was played in weird circumstances. But, you know, Winning it again in 95-96, A, it's the Champions League. It's arguably tougher competition. And even though they only won it on penalties, they kind of win it clean all the way through. And, you know, th th this was fun house, Ajax, and all the pomp that went with that. But I think, you know, even people who aren't Juve fans would recognize that this was a very legit win. Right. Although, actually, Ajax like to kind of raise their eyebrows a little bit at that. But as for Ravanelli, it turned out to be his final game. I'm talking about people in Italy, right? Not not, not like sort of deluded Van Hall types, right? I mean, I, I, enough of that. Yeah. Enough of that. I mean, Zen Examen might disagree. <laughs> Zen Examen. Oh, Zen no, okay. No, all right, all right, all right. I got it. So, yes. So, you bring up Zaman. Okay, yeah. This is still you. So, yes. No, I'm talking about what happened for, for stuff that happened on the pitch, right. leaving out referees. Okay. If you want to bring up Zen Examen and that whole thing, That's you another do so podcast. at your own peril, mm. James. So go for it. So, it's James. Don't 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 have it go at me this time, you the fans. So that would be one James Horncastle. <laughs> As I say, that's a subject worthy of its own podcast. In this one, let's just say that the final act that Ravanelli has as a Juventus player is having a go at Marcello Lippi for substituting him uh, to bring on Michele Padovano. Uh, obviously, before it got to penalties. Fun guy. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so in the days that follow, Bravanelli's celebrating, he thinks 
You know, Viali's on his way. I'm about to become Juve's captain. The club have very different ideas. They've sold him to Borough, where famously Fabrizio would really enjoy himself. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The 8-8-3 did not sudovest est. Another classic and uh, so appropriate for the much-travelled Fabrizio Ravanelli, who was off making another journey again in 1996. Just a few days after the final in Rome, Fabrizio is summoned to Turin, where the triade are waiting, Bettega, Giraudo and Moggi. In a vaguely soprano-esque scene, he's led in, expecting glory. Instead, he's told he's heading to the northeast of England, as Juve cash in a fat 7 million sterling, which was, at the time, the second highest fee ever paid in English football. They're bringing in Christian Vieri anyway for Juve, so they don't care. For Fabrizio, though, it's a stab in the back. That whole thing uh, where, you know, they win the Champions League and then they kind of, you know, break up most of the band. Because obviously, Viali left too. Paolo Sosa went to Dortmund, yeah. Yeah, Viali just capped on the side and, you know, he says they did offer him a new contract, but it was a kind of new contract offer where they're like, okay, we'll offer you this knowing that you're not going to take it, was how he put it. <laughs> um, and Ravanelli definitely, definitely expected it. And you're right, you you described the scenes, a scene at Sopranos ask, um, we should point out that... Um, when he met with uh, the 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 three of the Moji, Giraudo, and Bettega, and and incidentally, every time I mention this, I have to mention the Lapo Elkan quote that the fact that out of the three, the most likable person by far was Luciano Moji. When you were mentioning before, you guys were going on and on about his white hair and the iconic status of Ravanelli's white hair, which I didn't really see, but hey, um, obviously it was another white-haired Juve legend who ultimately dealt him the final blow. Mm. And that is the cuddly and lovable Roberto Bettega, Indeed. the one who, uh, the one who, in a, in a match, uh, he was playing a media game against journalists from Rai, famously described uh, one of his opponents as a Bedouin and another one as a camel. Um, but yeah, not a, not a particularly, not a particularly nice person, but a decent footballer in his day. Indeed, so so Juve had offered Gianluca Vialli a deal which he was almost certain to refuse. And Ravanelli himself tried a similar tactic with Borough when being informed of this impending move. He told his agent apparently to ask for an unfeasibly large salary. They actually plumped for six times 
his uh, previous wage at Juventus. But to his shock, Barra came back and said, yeah, that's fine. Uh, he jumped from seven thousand a week, uh, seven thousand pounds a week at Juve, to a reported forty-two thousand pounds a week uh, at Borough, becoming, of course, the Premier League's highest-paid player. Borough, I've not been. Is it very different to Turin? So the, the the joke at first. So there's a couple of things to say here, and I, and I I remember covering this at the time. Right. One is when he first arrived. You know, he called Middlesbrough. He called it Middlesburg. Which is fine. You've just arrived. You want to call it Middelburg? That's fine. But then he kept calling it. He called it Middelburg when he left. He still calls it Middelburg to this day. I don't think anybody cares enough, or maybe he can't put it in his head that that's not what it's called. There's no G at the end of the word, or rather, you know, there is, but it comes before the end. The other big thing about him was that you know one of his first interviews when he arrived. I guess it was still summer in Middlesbrough and he was scoring goals and there was Juninho and they're all smiling and Emerson. And he made the point that, well, this isn't this isn't such a bad place because we're, we're, we're right on the sea and there's beaches and stuff like that, you know, to which, you know, the, the repost was always like, well, you know, Murmansk is on the water as well. Um, <laughs> I, gap, I thought that gap. was... Uh, like yeah. you know, I mean, this this was like Umbria on teas. No, I mean, uh, yeah, it, Middlesbrough has its own sort of take on Italian cuisine, which I'm sure you will have had the Parmo, uh, which is what the uh, I have not of, had the Parmo, but I am familiar with it. Yes, <laughs> it is like a, a sort of chicken milanese, but with bechamel sauce and cheddar cheese. Ooh, I mean, what's really nice. what's what's not to like for Fabrizio? There's also a Pizzeria Ravanelli uh, down the road in Redcar, which is still there and is perhaps his most lasting legacy. <laughs> The, the the other thing though about about this was to some degree, and I will give him credit. At the time, you know, the world was a much smaller place than it is today, or was a bigger place, I guess. Sorry, bigger place, in the sense that you know different media could spin different tales, and there was there was no real sort of twenty four seven news cycle. So he'd say things in Italy, they'd bounce back here, the tabloids would jump over it, and then people in Italy would come back. He did try to make an effort. You know, he's just like, oh, it's cold and dreary in Middlesbrough. Okay, well, it's really, really freaking cold in Perugia. Perhaps not as dreary um, unless you're at night and the monster Florence comes after you. But Perugia is a really, really cold place in winter. It's, it's literally a town on top of, 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 of a mountain. And, you know, it's not all sunshiny. And, no, you know, it's and, and, Yeah, well, obviously, Turin can be pretty hideous too and most of the year. Um so this idea that, you know, it's not like he, he moved there from Rio, you know. Um, but all of this stuff got interplayed and it started messing with his head. Either he or, or somebody advising him came up with these stupid things like, oh, I have a lovely time. In my spare time, I go and play darts at my local pub by myself, which was also like, and like that makes you weird, right? I mean, I, I don't know. You guys have ever been going play darts at the pub by yourself? So it, he tried to make an effort. He did it in a clunky way. And then eventually he's like, enough of this. You know, he, he, he wanted to be loved. People did love him when he scored. But equally, you know, he, he never quite came to, I think, he never quite came to terms with the media. He suffered because of it. And then obviously came what he saw as a big betrayal from the team. I mean, he said he'd never speak to you, James, English media 
as personified in James Richardson. Yeah, well, uh, you can see his point. But the um, no, so I'd, I'd met him uh, back in his early days at, at Juve when he suddenly started to score goals. And given his kind of supposed role as very much the the backup, the kind of the spear carrier at the back in that Juve squad, when he suddenly started to score goals at Africa, we went and did a little piece with him. And he was a very pleasant, very modest chap living in a very modest apartment in in Turin, and uh, the kind of notion was, well, every dog has its day. What, what about this for Ravanelli scoring goals? So anyway, he goes on to score all these goals and become this kind of massive figure and makes the move to Borough. And I met up with him after he featured in the... Do you remember when Italy had to play a qualifier against Russia, two-legged, and the first leg was in Moscow in November, kind of minus 15 degrees, and Ravanelli plays uh, yeah. in that. The spaghetti gate. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. But anyway, after the game, which I think finishes 1-1, and Gigi Buffon makes his Italy debut and all sorts of stuff. I, I, I met him in the kind of the, the mix zone and he he said, I'm really sorry, but I'm never going to speak to the English media again after. This is 97. So of course, by this point, he's left. He's left Borough because he only has the, the, the one season there. And yeah, in goals term, it, it does go pretty well. There's 16 goals in, in 33 in the league, 31 in all competitions. The most famous ones being on that very first day in which Ravanelli became the only player ever to score a hat-trick on his Premier League debut. Here's Musto trying to burst through Ravanelli. Ravanelli, yes! It's a hat-trick! One of the things that makes Ravanelli's kind of myth so enduring is, is that it was one season and it, it felt like a perfect season as well even well, it, one of the most remarkable ones in, insofar as that um, you know he scores all those goals they reach two cup finals and they go down yeah. I mean they go to, down because they don't turn part, up for a game yeah because they had well but they, there was an outbreak of flu um, it seems weird talking about it in, in the COVID era but it was just normal flu they all had the sniffles and you know, they, they, they applied to the league and there were different rules back there. Although I think a lot of people involved with Middlesbrough might suggest that, you know, hey, if we'd been Manchester United, you know, if that had been Sir Alex on the phone saying half my team have the flu, let's postpone this game, they would have had no issue with it. Um, but I think with Middlesbrough, because they got to the two cup finals as well, they had a congested calendar or whatever. And they said, no, 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 you, you deal with it. You guys show up or you're going to forfeit the game. And they ended up um, not going, hoping that they would get a, an appeal, and that ultimately cost them their place in, in, in the top flight. Mm-hmm. Two points docked. You know, in terms of his, his year, yeah, I think he had been so used to the kind of defending that you have in Serie A um, and the kind of professionalism that you have in Serie A that you know, the Premier League in those days, it was easy for him. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to kind of flash forward to the present in Italy, I mean... Yeah, you know, people wonder why you know your Qualiorellas or your Luca Tonis in their mid thirties have have been Capocannoniere, and they say, oh, because yeah, you know, we were brought up playing against a certain kind of way of defending or a certain class of defenders, and now it's it's so easy. And I think if you if you, if you go back to to when Ravanelli goes from playing in Il Campionato Più Bello, Serie A, and playing for Champions League teams and coming up against your Costa Curtas, your Bereses, and that sort of thing, to then be playing uh, in in the Premier League at that time, it was facile facile. You know, it was just, it, it, he, he, he was able to score so many goals 
that again, this this kind of disproportionately disproportionate reputation as being an elite striker um, kind of really took hold. Mm. Well, his reputation was enough to earn him a move with Borough going down to Marseille in 1997. Uh, decent two and a half seasons there. They reach a UEFA Cup final, which again, Ravanelli's side loses against Palmer, although he's actually suspended uh, for the big game. He's also early on involved in one of the most famous dives in French football history in Le Classique away in Paris, a, a win for Olympique, uh, which is sparked by Fabrizio losing a battle with a very localised gravity strike uh, and earning a, a spot <laughs> kick. Anyway, uh, midway through the 99-2000 season, he finally gets his move back to Italy with Lazio, and it's good time to be arriving at the capital, James. Yeah, it's uh, Sven. Sven getting his way really with uh, signing all the guys he wanted from from Samp. You know, uh, Mancini, Mihailovic, Seba Veron. Um, you know, in 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 that first season, he comes in what in January, I think, um, as as someone who could maybe lend them a hand to help get them over the line because they choked the previous season, um, having had a huge lead, um, and uh, and they yeah he does just that and. Uh, you know, sort of happenstance, I suppose, is, you know, sort of Lazio in the final day, their game finishes earlier than Juventus is because Juventus are playing in Fabrizio's hometown <laughs> of, uh, of Perugia. And uh, when the game resumes, Juventus lose. And, uh, and yeah, Fabrizio doesn't seem to really care that, the, A, the team he supported as a boy, Juventus, and B, his hometown club, have kind of, you know, helped him win, what, the second league title of his career? So, mm. Yeah. Um, there you go. But at the same time, uh, other than what he won, not a particularly memorable no. time in what was one of these star-studded Lazio teams. Yeah, he's very much back to being the Gregario at this point, no? with, the, with, the, with that team. And then the following year when they bring in Claudio Lopez and Crespo. Yeah, and they already had Salas and, you know, there, there's no way he was going to get, there's no way this Duke was going to get on the pitch at that, at that stage of his career. Um, and... I think this this whole him going back to Lazio at the time, and we know how Lazio ended up with Cagnotti. It was just that mentality of just throw money around, accumulate bodies, you know, get Ravanelli so that because he was linked to other clubs too uh, when it came time to leave Marseille, and it was kind of like, oh well, if we get him, then you know, Juve or Milan won't get him, and so therefore, you know, he can't hurt us. You know, that was more. I think it was more that thinking. Yeah, I mean, just the guys he was competing with at Lazio for a, for a spot in the first team. I mean, the depth that they had up front. Gabs mentioned Salas. They also had um, Alan, former Middlesbrough legend, Cardboard Boxic. Kenna Anderson, I think, uh, was, was, uh, was, I think, only briefly. I think they, he then moved to Bologna or back to Bologna or Bari or whatever Kenna Anderson used to do his very tall Bologna. thing. Um, uh, and Simo Inzaghi as well. Mm. Inzaghi Due was uh, was there doing stuff. So, you know, I mean, uh, this is what Ravenelli seems to do. Apart from, we'll get to Derby in, in in a moment. But he he seems to be the guy who kind of you know comes in mid season either to to help get teams over the line, not just in terms of title winning, but also to keep them up. Well, at Juve, he was able to burn through the ranks and become the star himself. Didn't work out that way at Lazio, though. He did pick up honours there, but on he moves when that second season comes to a conclusion. Once again, on his travels now, instead of Casatana and Avellino, it's Derby County where he gets relegated, and then Dundee, most peculiarly, where he's 
makes a brief appearance before the club go into an administration and then the uh, basically the receivers cancel his contract and every everybody else's as well. At which point Fabrizio goes home again and this time back to the place where it all began, Perugia. I mean, D- Dundee we've, we've touched upon, but that somebody's going to write a book at some point because that was... There was a team that was run by the, uh, um, well, there were certain rather interesting gentlemen there who then might have had <laughs> some issues with uh, with the law. But um, you had the Bonetti brothers, uh, Ivano and, and Dario. You had Marco De Marchi, the former Colt figure briefly at Juve, Colt, Bologna defender. And then uh, and you had a guy named Patrizio Biglio who um, I got to know really well and who when he had his contract when you want to cancel his contract or, or take a pay cut or whatever it was because he was in while he was being injured and they were hemorrhaging money was you know approached on the street by a big chap who you know punched him in the face and beat him up um that was the kind of stuff that was going on in and around the club at the time so um i think ravanelli probably a little bit lucky that he got away with uh with just having his contract canceled wow gap I look forward to your next book coming out. <laughs> yeah, it's an extraordinary. I don't know how many people care. But. It's, it's an extraordinary <laughs> decade though at Dundee, which Claudio Canigia in there, Tomori Ketsbaya, all, all sorts of other things. Anyway, back to Perugia for Ramanelli. They are in Serie A at this point, but battling relegation. And owner Luciano Gauci has a plan, according to Fabrizio. When he got there, Gauci says to him, "Why don't you be player manager, and I will fire Susie Cosmi." Uh, but uh, Fabrizio says, I, I I had too much respect for Sergio Cosme and I couldn't take his place. Uh, Gauchi, of course, famously also wanted to sign a horse for his team. So, you know, he, he did have plans, did he not? Plans to keep Perugia up, James, because despite having uh, the intrepid striker Jay Bothroyd, who I think is currently uh, still playing in Japan, um, they also had uh, Ilbisonte, uh, Il Dario Hubner. Uh, Hubner couldn't keep them up. Di Francesco, Gaddafi, um, Fabio Grosso, young Fabio Grosso as well in this team. And uh, Ravinelli's goals actually, uh, yeah, he, he scores in a 1-0 win against Juve. Scores against uh, against Roma as well, um, who, you know, at that time, I think this is Totti and Cassano era Roma. Um, and they, well, they end up in a relegation playoff mm. um, against uh, against Fiorentina who were coming up from Serie B in that really kind of weird, fudged, we'll promote everyone so Fiorentina can get back up. Um, <laughs> but but they have to have a playoff, which, you know, doesn't go, doesn't go Perugia's way. And uh, unfortunately, they they were relegated and, you know, that, uh, that, that banter era Perugia of Gaucci came to an end. It did. The following season, they go down again to Chiuno. Ravanelli is by now almost back where he started and decides at the age of 36 to hang up those boots. He does have a managerial career, uh, briefly after this. 2013, he has a couple of months at Ajaccio in Corsica, where he's sacked after five straight defeats. Um, A lot of feeling that he was shouting at the players uh, too much. And then five years after that, an even briefer spell at Arsenal, Gabrieli. Yes, although, and this might come as news to some, but of course, this was the era when 
when Arsene Wenger went away to get some birthmarks removed because he was embarrassed about. Um, and so, but they didn't want to destabilize the club. So he donned his Arsene Wenger disguise and the big coat. And, uh, no, just kidding. It's a different Arsenal, actually. Uh, it's not Arsenal de Sarandi in South America. <laughs> it's not the other Arsenal in South America, which I think is in Uruguay or something. It is uh, Arsenal Kiev. Okay. And he went there and God knows. I don't know the story of how they found him, how they got there. I think at this point it had been like eight years since he'd actually managed. Although he did have a stint, apparently a brief stint, coaching in, in Juve's academy before they sent him away. Uh, but it was, ter- it was terrible. He lost seven games, I think, out of nine. And, uh, and that was that. He did redo his look, by the way. If you see him on television these days, he looks entirely different. He wears these little intellectual glasses and his hair is clipped short. But, you know, beneath the veneer, it's still the same Ravanelli as always. You know, a little bit. I always thought, you know, maybe deep down he's a good person, but a little maladjusted, a little uncomfortable, a little bit awkward. Um, Not unlike his playing style, but ultimately effective. Hmm. Well, possibly because of his humble origins, perhaps there was always that slight desire to prove himself that, that might come across as a, a chip on the shoulder. Equally, he regards his time at, at, at Borough, where famously he didn't get on with plenty of the players, and there was even talk of him coming to blows with some. As, as really, that was an expression of the fact that he wanted the best for the team. He was quite shocked when he arrived to discover that they trained in the local park, and there was this story that Having him was like having a buying a Ferrari, but not having a garage. I don't know who who it was said that. Possibly you, Gab, at, at the time. Uh, but yes, a, a player who cared very, very deeply and had, as a result, success beyond I think anyone would have imagined uh, when he first began. Twenty two caps as well for the Azzurri, James. I know you spent the morning watching him in action against <laughs> Wales. Um, was that well, again? I think this. I think this just goes to show where he was in the pecking order in Italy um, because, uh, you know, I think aside from Euro 96, he didn't have a major tournament. Uh, he, he regrets that he was injured for, for France 98. He thinks that's why he didn't get to go um, to that tournament instead. And I mean, really? <laughs> I mean, no, the, I mean, I think there's another <laughs> famous Italian striker who didn't go to the 1998 World Cup either, right? And who might be a little bit better than... Ravanelli, one yes, from Franco Zola maybe. Ah, you know, so I mean, what, 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 what makes you think that you know? Oh yeah, that, that's why I didn't go. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, only six starts for Italy. Um, you know, I, I suppose again, yeah, just as Gab mentions, uh, magic box. Uh, as I said, another more imaginative uh, nickname than Wazza. Um, (laughs) this idea that you know if you go and play abroad if you go and play away from the bright lights of Serie A Mm. then you will you will not be seen uh, by whoever it was Arrigo Sacchi Cesare Maldini um, and the like uh, may be counted against him Um, but I mean yeah his year at Marseille gets them to second and as you mentioned that uh, that UEFA Cup final which he didn't play in so he had a he had a he was he was banging in the goals in different championships. Just championships were seen as as lesser um, than what City A was at the time. And he was involved in in the qualifications for uh, ninety eight. Uh, in fact, I think it's there that he scores a really lovely free kick against Moldova. Well, this is the thing, and Gab will Gab will no doubt uh, mock uh, if you look yes. at who he who he's, <laughs> <laughs> if you look at who his goals came against uh, Georgia. You mentioned uh, a brace against Moldova. 
Wales, um, Ukraine, Slovenia, and Estonia. Those are those are his Italy goals. So um, I'm I'm pretty sure he scored. I think he scored five goals in an FA Cup game or a League Cup game while at while at Middlesbrough as well. Um, but I think that was against a non-league team like Hednesford or or, or Hereford or something. Like something Hereford, yeah. yeah. So you know, in the end, I, I'm sorry, I'm just looking at Italy squad in the ninety eight World Cup just to remind myself of you know who got picked ahead of the man who scored thirteen oh, goals oh. in the French league, right? Uh, you had Alessandro <laughs> Del Piero, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Baggio, you had, coming off a bad knee injury. Yeah, Pippo Inzaghi, mm-hmm. right? Roberto Baggio, Enrico freaking Chiesa, and Christian Vieri. So you know. This is who you lost out to. Yeah, but leave the guy yeah, alone. So, he wanted to play and, in the World and Cup. And Totti didn't go. Right. No, Totti didn't go, right? Yeah. Totti wasn't there. Yeah. Zola wasn't there. Uh-huh. And you're going to come and you're going to break balls about the fact that no, you he didn't just, get to go after your 13 goals for Marseille? Come on, man. He's allowed to regret the fact that he wasn't able to make it to a World Cup. I think we can sympathize with that. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I mean, Nicola Amoruso, presumably, you know, also has regrets about, you know, not going yeah, to a major Yeah, so does Padovano. Like, mention all those guys. <laughs> right. All in all, then. All in all, then. 247 goals in uh, 626 appearances in his career. A remarkable career, I would say. A career with considerable symmetry as well, beginning and ending in the low divisions at Perugia. Not quite sure with all of that how he ended up as one of the most imitated players of the 90s, but that is Fabrizio Ravanelli. Gab, I'm detecting that while you respect his achievements, that you're not a massive fan of him as an individual. Uh, has your heart warmed to him at all in, in the course of this? And, and James, how do you feel as we uh, close the book on Fabrizio, the Pena Bianca? I mean, I think he's obviously somebody who worked, he worked very, very hard. And having spoken to people who played with him, both at Middlesbrough and at, uh, and at Juventus, knowing some of them very, very well. He, he got a rough deal from from some English media when he was here, and he has every right to be angry about that. And he got a rough deal from some teammates who, you know, would feel out of place in today's Premier League too because it is much more demanding and much more professional than what they were used to. So I will give him credit for that. I'll give him credit for working hard. I think at some times... He made bad decisions and he was a little bit deluded. But I'll tell you what, like, there are a lot of footballers, not a lot, but there are footballers from humble beginnings who experienced much tougher times than he did and made it to the top and still remained very pleasant people who would always, you know, be available to speak to the media, you know, who saw it as part of their job. Um, I'll mention another guy with strong Perugia ties, who, as you know, I'm biased towards the Matrix, Marco Materazzi. Um, yeah, but he Ravanelli never did didn't seem to get that. No, but no, but whatever. But <laughs> off the pitch, no, off the pitch, he's he's he'd always been. Yeah, I mean, mm. you're in the on the pitch. Yeah, a lot of people did that, right? So for me, he always kind of it always felt weird for me that that first season when I was the first season I was working here, when you know you had Zola, Viali, Di Matteo, and Ravanelli all here, and Gianluca Festa, by the mm. way, who played with him at Middlesbrough. Uncle Festa, um, the guy. Who the, the guy who was the biggest diva out of all of them, by far, by far, was Ravanelli. Ravanelli, and, you know, yeah, and you know, <laughs> compared to Zola, another one. You want to talk humble beginnings? Well, Zola never shied away, yep. right? Um, and yet, this guy all of a sudden thought from his perch on Middlesbrough and his dartboard 
they, you know, he was a second coming. And I don't know. Maybe that's why I call it when I've crossed him afterwards. Right. He wasn't particularly nice. And ultimately, I think ultimately, I'm a pedant and it still bugs me that if you ask him, hey, where did you live between 1996 and 97? He'll tell you, I live Middlesbrough. I play Middlesbrough. I mean, it's still the most prolific season, if I'm not mistaken, that an Italian's ever had in England, which I think is one of the reasons why uh, over here, he is what he is. He is a football Italia player, James. You know, in in yeah, he really I, I think is. It really he is, shows he is the, the gift, career of a lot of unworthy people. That <laughs> he is the gift you gave um, because you and John you know, D. Taylor. Let's not forget, right? I think it's <laughs> That's Peter, Peter Branksu who uh, who bequeathed Ramanelli uh, to the world. But anyway, there you go. What, what a fascinating story. I must say, I, I did enjoy looking back on on how he. He suddenly appeared there in the mid-90s at the forefront of Juventus and of Calcio as a result. Yeah, and your conclusion was incredulity, wasn't it, James? <laughs> when we started this podcast, you were like, how? <laughs> well, a little bit. But I do think a lot had, uh, and possibly, you know, in the same sort of paradigm as, as, as Colina, perhaps, a lot of it had to do with the hair. Anyway, there you go. That is Fabrizio Ravanelli. Uh, do join us again for another Golazzo soon. But for now, that's it. So many, many thanks to James Horncastle and senior writer for ESPN, Gabriele Marcotti. We'll see you soon. For now, from all of us here, arrivederci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. Check out all of The Athletic's podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on The Athletic app. The Athletic.